Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman, and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the ASHI podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with ASHI. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and, of course, to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Welcome to our third ASHI podcast. Our guests today are Dr. Sonali Advani. Dr. Advani is an assistant professor of medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine and serves as the co-medical director for the Duke Infection Control Outreach Network, well known as DICOM. In her role, she assists more than 60 community hospitals in development and strengthening of their infection prevention programs. She's currently a fellow in implementation science at Washington University. Dr. Advani has over 10 years experience in healthcare epidemiology research and operations. She's now primarily a physician investigator with a broad research portfolio focusing on improving the diagnosis of UTIs in older adults, implementation of diagnostic stewardship interventions, and improving metrics to better align with outcomes. She's been awarded several federal grants and foundation awards for her UTI-related research. She is contributing to the upcoming Shea-Caudi Compendium, the Shea Nursing Home Infection Prevention Guidance, and the American Urogynecology Society Bacteria Guidance and Shea's HAI Research Agenda. Dr. Fakie is Chief Quality Officer at Ascension, a nonprofit health system of 144 hospitals in over 2,600 sites of care. A substantial component of his work is building a structure to improve clinical care from identifying best practices, creating a process that supports both patient and provider adoption, and hardwiring it to achieve sustainable results. Related achievements, including improving mortality, mitigating the risk of HAIs, and medication-related harm. He also enhances both antimicrobial stewardship and sepsis outcomes in acute care. His research on reducing device-associated infections focuses on the appropriate use and proper maintenance. In addition to preventing urinary catheter harm, he emphasizes diagnostic stewardship of caudies. Dr. Fakie is professor of medicine at the Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit. He is board certified in infectious diseases and has an executive master's in health management and policy from the University of Michigan. He's authored more than 80 peer-reviewed articles and more than 100 published abstracts. He serves as a member on the CDC's Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee. Drs. Advani and Fakir are joining us today to discuss their publication entitled Deconstructing the Urinalysis, a Novel Approach to Diagnostic and Antimicrobial Stewardship, which was originally published in ASHI in 2021 and recently featured in our World Antibiotic Awareness Week collection. It was one of our most heavily cited, downloaded, and tweeted articles since the inception of our journal, and I consider it a must-read for anyone in healthcare, as it calls out much of what we do in the hospital for no reason and pushes us to do better. Drs. Advani and Fakih, welcome to the ASHI podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for that kind introduction and for having us, Drs. Nori and Bierman. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Priya, for that awesome introduction. And really excited to have the star-studded cast on the third ASHI podcast. Super excited to hear what you have to say about your publication. 
But I do have to mention really briefly that Dr. Fakih and I got to know each other quite some time back, right, Mohammed? Yeah. Uh, I was a very impressionable, probably overly enthusiastic third-year medical student at the University of Buffalo, and you were the ID fellow. Yeah. 1995, maybe, 96? You're absolutely right, about 95, right. probably, yeah. That's right. So it's great to have you on our program. So Thank take you. it away, Bria. Great. Thank you, Gonzalo. Okay, so to kick things off, I'm going to start with Sonali. Sonali, can you summarize the article and your key takeaways for our listeners? Definitely. Before I summarize this article, I want to say that this is really Dr. Fakih and my labor of love. I think we wrote this over the pandemic. It took us over a year to write this because we were we were both getting pulled in so many directions, but this was really a passion project for us. This is something that we've been passionate about for a really long time and talked about this for so long. This took a lot of thought, a lot of effort, and a lot of time. And that's something that people haven't seen on the other side. But really, this has been like this this paper with our baby, honestly. So, so thank you for having us to talk about this. Just to kind of summarize the article, you know, in this in the simplest way possible, what we wanted to focus on was diagnostic stewardship for precursor tests like urine analysis. You know, how a urine analysis is misused, and then try to find a novel way for people to rethink the urine analysis by deconstructing it and think about it from the point of view of the diagnosis that you are targeting rather than a catch-all approach when you use urine analysis. So what we did here is we mainly said that what we're living in now is an area of information overload. We have tests that give you too much information. For example, you order urine analysis for renal monitoring. You end up getting information on pyuria. People are so busy and they reflexively will now order a urine culture or prescribe antibiotics. It's such a simple test, but it ends up giving you way too much information in a time when people are just not capable of dealing with that level of information. So that's when we said it's we need to think about a novel diagnostic stewardship approach. And, and even though it's a novel approach, it's very simple. This is where I think Dr. Fakir was talking about, why don't we think about how we use blood tests? We don't have a single blood test for CBC, BMP, and LFTs. We've broken up these panels, and that's how the idea started to come together. And we said, why doesn't urine have a separate panel for the metabolic, for the renal, and for the inflammatory tests? So I'll pause there, and I'll let you guys go on to your your next question. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So next question is for you, Mohammed. What were your concerns about how your analyses were currently being used in your institution and others where you may have traveled or worked? What bothered you the most? And therefore, what was the impetus to develop this idea with Sonali? So as Sonali said, it's you know a very important aspect of how we practice medicine and how we evaluate patients is the pretest probability. So we have an idea in our mind, maybe one or two things we're considering as far as a disease process or based on the symptoms and signs, this is what may be happening to our patients. And then we decide what test to order. So whenever we we have a test that we order and it does not reflect what we're thinking about or it gives you way more than what you need, then it's diverting us towards a different path and confusing us. And as we know, the more tests you have, so if you have, by chance, you may have something, 
you know, that you may consider quote unquote abnormal. That's in a nutshell, you know, the idea that Sonali and I worked on. You know, if you think about a medical student or physician in training or practice physician, we're all been taught that the presence of white cells in the urine, and they are ID physicians, and forgive me if I'm saying something really here that may hurt some feelings. There are some ID physicians that think that pyuria is infection. So it's not because they don't know what to do. It's because this is how we've been trained since we started medical school. So changing that is very hard. It takes so much time and effort to engage these physicians. And part of the solution is to ensure that we don't have these tests in front of people and then the confusion happens. So the attribution of physicians that the presence of nitrites or look esterase on the urinalysis and infection, these are cognitive biases that are very entrenched to our practices and very difficult to correct. It's not enough for us to look at the use of the urinalysis when suspecting a UTI, but also look at its use when we're suspecting something else. Because as Sonali said, and I don't know if we, we stress that, the precursor. So the urinalysis is the precursor of u- urine culture. So if you want to go, it's almost like a movie. You have your movie and then the second part, and then they decide they want to have the prequel. So the prequel of the story is the urinalysis. That's where it's not just hitting the evaluation of infection, but it's much broader than this. It's hitting any time we're using the UA. So whether I use it for a specific gravity and I get pyuria in it and then click, I have to treat, or I'm using it to see if there's protein in the urine, completely different diseases we're looking at. I'm getting the numbers of nitrites or glucasterase or something like this. So this is, I think it's much bigger than what we think. This is what brought this paper. So I love the the answers to those questions. And I want to go back to something that was stated by Sonali, which I also love. As you said, it's a labor of love. It's kind of a passion play for you. So your doctors historically overtreat and overdiagnose on a gazillion fronts. Why the urinalysis? What particularly is drawn you to that? That is a great question. And it's something that is underappreciated how much the UA drives the urine testing and drives antimicrobial use. And even today I'm on service and we've seen this so much with other areas of overuse of UA where reflex urine cultures are misused or overused or where the UA actually, you know, Cal Gupta's papers where it's shown that the level of pyuria drives antimicrobial prescribing it's ingrained in somewhere in medical training and somewhere in our culture that the level of pyuria, the presence of nitrite, even if the patient has negative urine cultures. And what's funny is I'm literally consulted on someone this week for positive nitrite because there's such a high suspicion because of that positive nitrite that that is a UTI in a patient just with fever and a positive nitrite. And there's an insistence that this is a UTI, but the culture is negative. So there is such an ingrained belief in our culture that these positive findings in urine analysis are representative of UTI when they're not. And I think that we haven't spent enough time or research or even delved into the data to understand what behavioral aspects of this are driven by these urine analysis parameters. So it might be the urinalysis, the way we use it, is kind of a symptom of a broader problem that we have diagnostically in the way we think. And it, it's, it's funny that that consult was called, especially to you, perfect opportunity for you yeah. to promote your open access article, I might add. 
That's true. And I, I do, I do, I do reference my own article sometimes, which is kind of weird. I post our little pictures as well sometimes, but I think strategically I get the UTI consults. So, so on that note, if we can dig into this a little bit further, one of the myths I think that's perpetuated probably decades old is this concept of the urine as a sterile space. And I know, Sonali, this is a huge pet peeve for you, but where do you think this started and what can we do to bust through this myth for providers? That's a good question. I'm not sure of where it started. Maybe Dr. Fakir knows where it started, but I think generally for the longest time, even in like a lot of cultural beliefs, urine is believed to be sterile. There are some cultures that believe you can drink urine and it helps. And there are some cultures where people use urine for different medicinal properties. What we had looked in for this article was the historical aspect of why people were so caught up in the color of urine, the odor of urine, the appearance of urine. And what we found is it actually dates back several thousand years where this whole analysis of urine has been something that has been done back from the 17th century, where this process was called uroscopy, where people would, or physicians back then, would use that to diagnose selective conditions. And, you know, over time, it evolved to even a point where they, some, I don't even know if these were physicians or these were just some kind of practitioners that didn't even see patients. They would actually just look at the urine and there was a color card, which they would match these, the appearance and the color and the odor of urine. There's a real ingrainment to looking at the color and the odor and the appearance and how it looks and feels and appears, which has carried on over centuries. And so we're trying to break a real cycle now when we try to tell people, don't look at the color, don't look at the smell, focus on symptoms, focus on you know how your patient is doing. Just complementing what Sonali has shared, when you, you think about the sterile space and the myths behind the sterile urine, I think part of it is when someone is a young adult, the urine most of the time is sterile, is a negative culture environment. And then what is not understood is that physiologically with age, we start getting colonized in urine and we get more and more bacteria. And, and when we're in our golden years, if we're in our 80s or, or 90s, a much higher percentage of the population will have it, especially if they're in extended care facilities or skilled care facilities. You know, I view the urinalysis in medicine very similarly to using salt at the dinner table. You have that salt shaker at the dinner table. You have to have it there. So a key element with the urinalysis is like it's embedded in every single order set. You go to the ED, the first thing they'll ask the person who comes into the ED, hey, fill in that cup. The person may be coming for a headache or an earache, fill in that cup. Well, when we fill in that cup, we're going to test that cup. When we test that cup, what will happen? We'll find something in the cup. So this is a big problem we have. It's a very cheap test. So no one is pushing us, okay, why are you spending money? Because it doesn't cost a lot of money. But at the same time, the collateral damage of the urinalysis is huge. You know, it's very negative to the care. And I worry about the diagnostic stewardship and diagnostic errors. So... If you think about those that, that come in with some 
mental changes or you know confusion and we do UA for an elderly. I mean, what do we expect? We're going to have a normal UA for an elderly? All of them have what we call an abnormal UA. So that's a big thing. So how often we use it and have it incorporated everywhere in medicine. Surgery, we should not be having a UA for someone who's not a urologic surgery. But how often do you see for surgeries pre-op, part of the standard pre-op workup is a UA. So these are, again, things that are embedded in our practice that are not evidence-based, that it's very hard to remove. Thinking about the UA and trying not to order it unless it's necessary is a very important part of reducing the abuse of, of that test. So like the salt shaker, use it sparingly. Especially if you have high blood pressure. Correct. So pause, think through it, taste the food before you spray the salt on it. So Excellent it. point. I like that analogy. So can we talk about the reflexive approach for a second? Lots of facilities in their attempt to institute diagnostic stewardship around urine have adopted a reflexive approach whereby at a certain threshold, the urinalysis will reflex to a culture. So I seem to recall from both of your various talks on the road that you do not believe in that approach. Can you tell us why that doesn't quite go far enough in either of your opinions? So this is a very loaded question. And I will start by saying, I know Dr. Faki may or may not share my, my similar opinion, but I'll start by saying that I don't wholeheartedly not believe in reflex. I believe that people don't know how to use reflex here in cultures. So I think there is a real challenge in how people set their criteria, how people implement reflex urine cultures, and then how the individuals involved actually use reflex cultures in the field. Like, how do the practitioners use reflex urine culture? So it's a very loaded question. In the ideal world, if reflex urine cultures were used optimally, I think they would work. What I wanted to get back is really the real challenge is there is no consensus on which urine analysis parameters should be used for reflexing. We really have no data to guide us. There is no data to guide us on which populations are best suited for this test. In general, I think we know from some prior data, it would be okay for outpatients who are young, but we don't know if this test is going to really be helpful in catheterized patients. In fact, we would say it, it would not work well in catheterized patients or older adults. And then most laboratories accept specimens from like all places, like they will accept it from a catheterized specimen, they will accept it from a bedpan, we don't know where these specimens are going from. So it's a very complicated setup. And I can talk about some of this in implementation, because we did like a pro-con for reflex urine cultures at Shea. I actually did the pro side to highlight that it's not the test, it's the implementation where things go wrong. And the implementation part where things are completely messed up is where it's not targeted towards patients with genitourinary symptoms. It would be ideal if we used a reflex urine culture, which is, you know, when a patient has certain positive urine analyses parameters, then it reflexes to a urine culture. If we use this test on patients that had UTI symptoms, just not a catch-all test, that is used on any patient that has fever or any patient that has hypotension or a patient that you wanted to rule out UTI without really having a high suspicion. 
And this is where I'd go back to what Dr. Fakhi said earlier was the pretest probability. I think that's how you stage your patients. So it's complicated. A lot of this goes into the implementation side and really setting your UA parameters in a way that you are setting yourself up for success and focusing on NPV, making sure you have your EMR set up that you allow people to order UAs separately from reflex as well and not all UAs reflex, and then making sure that your practitioners target reflex urine cultures towards symptomatic patients to improve pretest probability. I think you could set yourself up to success. I always agree with Sonali. You know, we wrote, in fact, together an opinion piece on diagnosis of UTI and the importance of being reflective rather than reflexive, right? So I think the reflective portion is extremely important. And this is the pre-analytical phase. If we don't think before we order, whatever reflex we do, it's not going to help. So this is why we try to have an easy solution. And what Sonali was sharing is there's no simple solution. We have to always think. So an assessment of the pretest probability, the symptoms of signs uh, of the patients are key to better identify a UTI. And then you reflex to urine cultures and you know you get the results. So reflexing alone without using an isolation, without getting the clinical, is gonna tell you someone may have asymptomatic or symptomatic UTI. It's not gonna tell you that they have symptomatic UTI. And I would argue that the reflex urine cultures, which are meant to be used to reduce inappropriate urine cultures, suffer from the same cognitive bias that we have with the pyuria. So what's the difference? We're saying, okay, this level of pyuria, it means you have a higher chance of getting a UTI. It's the same story if you don't have the reflex, you have a UA and you're treating it. I don't know if a lot of people would be fans of what I'm saying, but I still believe it's pretty much the same issue. So when you look at reflex urine cultures, they either use, you know, there's so many of them that are used and some are a certain threshold of white cells. So whether you say five, 10, 15, 20, 25, who says which number is right? And then some of them say, or white cells or nitrites or bacteriuria. So some say, and. The big question is, which one of them is the right answer? It may reduce the number of cultures that are done, but does it discriminate the symptomatic UTI from others? Are we just cutting the utilization of urine cultures? It's a very important question to answer, and I don't think anyone has the solution because they have the solution. I think our paper would not be as important. So since you have the ball, Dr. Faki, how would you design the optimal decision support around your analyses. And also as a, as a follow-up, in your role as CQO of a major, massive healthcare system, how would you then enforce that from your platform? I wish I have that magic ball. Maybe it would be my Christmas gift this year. I don't think there's a magic ball, honestly. I think there are two elements. I think as clinicians, we really need to take a history talk to the patient, examine the patient. So having these clinical findings that then will trigger what next to do. And then you can you know, integrate with an EMR, a protocol or an algorithm. If you have these symptoms, this is what you do. You get the urinalysis. Then like Sonali said, 
you know, we may decide more than 10 white cells, more than 15 or 20, whatever it is, we'll decide an algorithm that we follow that will capture those that are at high risk of having bacteriuria with the symptoms. And then symptoms plus bacteriuria, you know, or positive urine culture will give you a better diagnosis for UTI. That's how I would see it. I think the deconstructing your urinalysis is extremely important because it, it reduces a lot of the collateral damages. And I'm hoping Sonal will talk a little bit more about what she's doing at uh, Duke. But basically, it reduces the noise that comes with the UA so people would not be confused. So that's something in the future that would be extremely important. At the health le- system level, I think we have some low-hanging fruits when we work with hospitals. So we have more than 100 hospitals and we have data. I have data and utilization of urinalyses and urine cultures. And what I found out, we have very few that have reflex urine cultures. Sonali knows that. I've not been a fan of reflex urine cultures. That said, you can use it in an appropriate way. Those that have reflex urine cultures within our system, and they're very few, has higher utilization of urine cultures because it depends on how the provider, how they're using that UA. If they use a lot of UAs, then you're gonna have a lot of urine cultures too. And we found out that we have a range between probably about 25% of patients admitted that would have a UA up to more than 50% or 60%. So when you have within the inpatient setting, that range, and this is, we're talking nationally, I'm pretty sure is similar, a big range then you know in some places you're going to have way more urine cultures done. That as a system, you can target and you can engage those that would look like outliers and and dig a little bit deeper. Is it appropriate or not appropriate? And then it will help you with your antimicrobial stewardship. Diagnostic stewardship here is a very important factor for antimicrobial stewardship to be successful. As far as the CQO, and I thank you for asking that question, I think leadership needs to build a structure first to empower a standardized process to accomplish better outcomes. And the first thing that came up to my mind, we have a system antimicrobial stewardship committee at the system level, which standardizes. And we're community hospitals. We have about 40 antimicrobial stewardship physicians and pharmacists that work together. This group has established an algorithm to optimize the use of your analysis, and we are implementing it for anyone who's suspected to have a UTI. So this is as far as the structure and giving a product. But then what we do, we engage many of our hospitals regarding reflex urine cultures and ensure that if they want to keep the reflex urine culture is that it wouldn't be the first thing they order in the order set. So if you go UA and it says UA with reflex as a number one, that's what the provider will click on. So you may want to put it as a third or fourth or fifth level. So the regular UA would be without reflex and then you go, you know, so at least you can do some stuff within the EMR to reduce the side effects of having it there. We engage also from a system perspective, we engage the leaders. So we engage the CMOs, we engage the CNOs, uh, you know, chief medical officers and chief nursing officers. So they will empower also the antimicrobial stewardship team. We engage groups that are hospitals groups. So if you have a hospitals group that covers 80, 90% of your, of your patients, if you talk to their leaders, you're reaching to the person that's in charge and she or he can share with their peers. It'll be much more powerful. So there are different ways you can do it. The last thing I want to share is that getting them data. 
we're able to pull data regarding the clinicians and how often they order tests. So when you see someone who's three, four times more than others in ordering tests, the antimicrobial stewardship team can engage them so they would be aware that they are an outlier. And again, it's not saying don't do it. It's saying that there's a big difference between you and the others. Let's try to figure out why. So this is how we can help from a system perspective. Thank you for that extremely detailed and well thought out answer. So speaking of best practices for implementation of these tests, Sonali, what implementation constructs should stewards and epidemiologists keep in mind when considering a change to their laboratory processes for your analyses? Great question. So I know we talked a little bit earlier about how the test is not the problem. It is how we implement it that usually is the problem. And we've seen this a lot. I think, you know, one of the most frequent questions that I've got, because my role is slightly different from Dr. Fakay's role, I serve mostly as a consultant to many hospitals. And so what I get is questions from people. And people ask me a question like, what UA parameters should I use for reflex urine cultures? Or what kind of test can I roll out to reduce my rate of ASB prescribing? And usually I get very stuck when the question is so broad or vague. And I always go back to one presentation that Dr. Faki had done for us at one of our DICON symposium was really like understanding the problem that you're trying to solve and delving down to have a And this is even before you get to implementation science. Most people don't know what is the problem they're trying to solve. It's this complete vagueness of, I want to implement reflex urine cultures. And I'm like, why? Don't just do it because people around you are doing it. Let's figure out why you want to do it. So really, I tell people, take a step back. First, define your problem. In fact, I think, Dr. Faki, your presentation had spent 80% of your time If you have 100% of time, spend 80% of your time defining the problem. And that's so important because I have people running to do interventions and I say, come back, let's sit, let's figure out what are we trying to solve. And it helps a lot because a lot of implementation science theories are grounded in that. And you first start with understanding the evidence practice gap. So you see what are you currently practicing and how far is it from the evidence that you see. You define the evidence practice gap. Then you move on to finding out what are the barriers that you see. So one one good example is that if you are trying to figure out if reflex urine cultures is something that you wanted to implement and your administrator or your hospital administrator says, I heard about this thing, why don't you do this? One good thing would be to take a step back and see why are you having an increased rate of urine culturing and figure out what are the barriers to appropriate urine test utilization. Maybe your barrier is something like you have, you know, UA already pre-selected in every order set that is leading to urine cultures. In that case, adding reflex urine cultures isn't going to solve your problem. Removing a UA will solve your problem. So really doing an analysis of barriers and facilitators, and there are several models like the COMBI model, is very helpful. These models are helpful because they help you understand, is the barrier lack of knowledge? Is the barrier opportunity, which means it's is it an, a current lab-based practice, a current EMR practice? Like Dr. Faki said, sometimes just a very simple change, like moving a lab from the first choice to the bottom choice can change the number of times people 
order a test. And then once you have your barriers and facilitators, then you can start thinking about tailoring your intervention to those barriers. And that's important because if your barrier is not lack of knowledge, spending all your resources on education is not going to be a good way of solving your problem. If your barrier is the fact that you have some kind of an EMR structure or you have pre-selected order sets, then spend all of your resources on removing those pre-selected order sets. So it's, it's a very systematic approach to implementing interventions or de-implementing interventions. Now put a little plug in here. I'm working on my editorial on de-implementation for ASHI, and I'm going to bring some of these constructs in there. And there is a really good framework called Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research that when you are thinking of implementing and evaluating an intervention, it gives you relevant constructs. So this is something that we have done in Healthcare Epi, but this is a framework that helps you start thinking. It's called CIFAR for short. It helps you start thinking about when I'm going to implement, I should think about the fact that what is my intervention? What is the evidence behind this intervention? And can I trial this intervention before I start just rolling it out in the entire hospital. The next part is the outer setting. Like what is the pressure I'm getting from CMS? What are the other hospitals in the area doing? Because that exerts pressure on my hospital. Then is the inner setting, really important. That's another thing that Dr. Fakis talked about in the past is the implementation climate. If you're in the middle of a pandemic, don't start an intervention that's new and complicated. The individuals involved, you know, if, are the individuals involved capable of implementing this? And do they need some education to implement this new intervention? And the last part is the process of executing the intervention, engaging and evaluating it. So there are some really interesting theories, models and frameworks that we can use. And hopefully we can work together in the future to start publishing more on this in our healthcare epi and stewardship community. So we can have some good implementation frameworks for our peers and our colleagues to use. Those are great comments, Sonali. We really look forward to your upcoming paper on implementation related to this, this particular challenge. I think that'll be very helpful. Maybe perchance a serve as a roadmap to many of us in this field. So it's really great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Great. If I may ask a follow-up question, kind of shifting yeah. away from your, uh, your institutions and your, your areas of focus, what do you think is the role of our professional societies and patient advocacy around overtreatment of UTIs? Do you think the current guidelines go far enough in your opinion? Who else should be involved as stakeholders? And this is for either of you. I can start, you know, and my answer is not a direct answer to your question because I think it's even more complicated than this. I believe we we have been driven by incentives uh, or, or disincentives that are influenced by public reporting and also payers. So if you remember before the hospital acquired condition penalty, catheter associated UTI was not really popular. And then after that, it became very important to hospitals. So the hospital-acquired conditions and CAUTI pushed many hospitals to find solutions to get their numbers better. And this is, this again, to what Sonali talked about, is trying to fix a number rather than fixing the problem. And what I care for as a clinician is preventing caster harm or you know preventing injury to patient and getting a better outcome for the patient. I think we need 
better definitional measures for caster-associated AI. You know, Sonal and I have written about this before. The surveillance definition is not optimal. It's probably the best we have right now, but it's not an optimal definition. And if we don't do any urine cultures, then we get zero caster-associated UTI. If we do a lot of cultures, we get a lot of caster-associated UTI. So it looks much more of an antimicrobial stewardship issue, but still it's very dependent on how often we test. So I don't see it improving patient care. I see it improving a number. I'm pretty sure that this is not what we want to do. As far as the guidelines, I think the guidelines are clear. But again, the definition of UTI is very tough, especially with the catheter. As far as patient advocacy, they should be aware of the risk of inappropriate urine testing. If I may share a story, and it's not about salt this time. My story, and this is a true story. So years ago, if you remember, I worked quite a bit on urine catheter use and unnecessary urine catheters, and we're part of the 50-state initiative on the cost of stop cardi. As a faculty, I was with Sanji Saint at that point. We used to get a lot of questions. What should we do if the patient insists that she or he wants the urinary catheter? And this was in the context of, okay, Mrs. Smith has CHF. She's coming to the hospital. She's on the floor. She's getting diuresed. She's asking for the Foley. How can I push back and say, Mrs. Smith, the Foley is not a good thing for you? My answer was, Mrs. Smith never was born with the Foley. Someone taught Mrs. Smith that the Foley catheter is the treatment, and it was not Mrs. Smith. It must have been one of the docs that ordered the Foley on Mrs. Smith. So it was a learned behavior. I can go back and say it's an imperative for us as clinicians to do the right thing, and then our patients will buy in and be on board. The patients want the best for themselves, and they want to be protected. That's my patient advocacy part is Let's do the right thing for the patient, educate them, give them support, but it's not them that are pushing for the wrong treatment. I like that perspective. It's really on us, the onus on us, the medical profession, really choose the right test for the right person at the right time, not so much be influenced by the expectations of others with respect to this, to your analysis. Great. You know, one thing I can share also as far as stakeholders is uh Diagnostic stewardship is a team sport. So you have the clinicians, the physicians, pharmacists, nurses, infection preventionists, and lab. But there are other important stakeholders, and I know Sonali's worked closely with them. That you know, whoever cares for the geriatric population, so geriatricians, are very important support for us. And they all don't want a urine culture to be done on a patient inappropriately because they know the misuse of the test and what puts the patient at risk. I've talked to a lot of geriatricians about, you know, the ED when their patients come from, for example, a nursing home, go to the ED, and then they get the UA and are sent back to the nursing home with an antibiotic or admitted erroneously for UTI and they don't have a UTI and there's another diagnosis that's missed. So that's another big stakeholder group that will support also stewardship in the most vulnerable population, the elderly. I can add a little bit. I know you did you did mention nurses. We are starting to pay a little more attention to that area, especially since you know the way that nurses communicate the clinical condition of a patient to a physician. And I know both you, Dr. Faki, and I have done surveys of nurses to understand their knowledge and their whether their attitudes towards urine culturing. 
But over time, some of the things that we're realizing is that the impact that nurses play on physician prescribing when it comes to urine culture ordering or antibiotic prescribing, and it's a they play a really big role. And that compounded by patient expectations and family expectations can be a real driver of our stewardship efforts. And so I think that is an area that we are now starting to focus on a lot is stewardship education for nursing. And I think that's something we're also doing with our IDSA stewardship curriculum with Dr. Nori. So I think that is an area that's going to grow. Some other stakeholders that recently we've started to involve is informatics. We've started to realize that we can really leverage the EMR to think of low-hanging fruit. Like how can we make the right choice easy and make the wrong choice difficult? And how can we make it easier for our physicians to do the right thing? And that's the other thing is, you know, having informatics physicians as a part of our team has been the other thing we're doing. That's great. So we're speaking largely in these very interesting, large concepts, but I'd like to provide some takeaways from two of our major experts in the field here. What would be the first step in deconstructing the urine analysis? So for instance, we have a listener maybe hearing this on their way home from work and the following day, they are going to propose exactly what in terms of actioning this concept of deconstructing the urinalysis. What is the lowest hanging fruit in your opinion or the very first step? I can add something that we have done at Duke as low hanging fruit. It's not really deconstructing the urine analysis, but what we started to do was just think about the urine analysis as a whole and think about what part of the urine analysis will be not needed any of the three panels, like not in the UA renal, not in the UA metabolic or in the UA inflammation. We went through all of our investigations and we found that bacteria and yeast on your analysis has no value, at least in terms of what our analysis showed us in predicting UTI. So we have stopped reporting on the post-analytic phase, bacteria and yeast on urine analysis. It was a very simple change. It was a first step. It helped for people to start understanding that we'll see how this change plays out and see the comfort level of everyone in the institution with this change, see how people react to it over time before we go on to deconstructing the urine analysis. But I'll pass on the next question to Dr. Faki. I love what you did, Sonali, was, you know, not reporting bacteria and yeast. And, you know, if, if they're worried about looking at nitrites, I know nitrites are not 100% sensitive, but but it's there. And if they're suspecting UTI, that's a completely different story. But this would reduce a lot of the noise again with seeing something that's bacteria and then treating it inappropriately. So I love that. We have not pushed forward with looking at how to divide the UA. I'm wondering, however, for the future, if suppressing, similar to what you talked about, but having like specifically what we talked about, we have different panels. You can do the UA, but suppress whatever is not what you're asking for. It takes, you know, it takes the environment to change and people, the, the clinicians to be more accepting. I think at least we should start discussing it within our professional communities. That's what we need to do for next steps. Mohammed, you had also mentioned something earlier. I don't I don't know if you realized, but you said probably every single admission order set has a urinalysis within. 
And so maybe the very first step is just understanding, like downloading each of those, reviewing them with the stewardship team or the IP team and seeing why is there an order for UA in the STEMI order set, for instance. And so maybe that's where we all start is just removing it all together from where it does not need to be. Absolutely. And and I can share with you years ago, for example, COPD exacerbation, CHF. You know, now some people will say, okay, I want to know the UA for a different reason, but COPD exacerbation, pneumonia. Why would you have it on a pneumonia order set? Every order set needs to be reevaluated for value of every test that's checked there. I can argue it's not even, you know, having it there to be potentially checked or unchecked. If it's not needed, not to be in the order set completely. It'll help better diagnosis. Great points. So we're running to the end of the time here. And I wanted to kind of circle back around to your, your manuscript as a whole. We've been super fortunate at ASHI to have some really great content this last year. Your manuscript, though, is one of the top papers. It's gotten the most downloads, got a lot of social media attention, et cetera, et cetera. So my question for you is, what made your paper so special? Because ASHI is so special. Oh, so kind, so kind. But it's got to be a little bit more than that, you know? Sonali, what do you think? You know, I honestly, I want to think about, if there was one thing I could put into it, I would say nobody knows the amount of time that we spent on this manuscript. And there could not have been a a better reception for something that we worked so hard on. And for people to appreciate the amount of research that both of us did into this, the amount of thought that we put into this, how passionate we have been about this subject. And what they see is the deconstructing the UA manuscript, you know, but we have written chapters. We have written several manuscripts before this that have been a series of leading up to our thought process that builds to this manuscript. So really what it is, is a culmination of our work leading to this manuscript. So I think that's what it is. It, it's yeah, like I, our I, brains working together. In academics, it's paid dividends, so it's really great. Yeah. So I guess the very last question is, and this is not a trick question, but each, it's one for each of you. What book is currently on your nightstand or Kindle, if that's what you choose? We'll start with Mahan. What are you currently reading, sir? Oh, man. You put me on the spot. I am a nerd. I read a lot of medical stuff, and I don't have much time to read others. I would say I love to listen these days to some stuff related to the economy, completely non-medical, but but it's not books. I, I listen to to the news. That's what I do. Sounds great. So now... So- This is not something that I'm currently reading, but I recently read and I absolutely love. So I keep it with me at all times. It's called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And it is the best negotiation book I have ever read. And it's phenomenal. And it has helped me negotiate with ASB antibiotic issues. It has helped me negotiate with my husband. It has helped me negotiate other things that I've needed. Basically, it's just been phenomenal. I would recommend it, especially for somebody in training or anybody looking for a job or trying to, you know, who's thinking about negotiation for anything. This is a wonderful book. And it's I like a must- Never split the difference with the your analysis. That's true. <laughs> so we have next paper. Next paper. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much. Dr. Nori, any closing comments? Uh, Well, just thank you both profusely on behalf of the ASHI Journal, 
Thank you so much for choosing us as your home for your labor of love and your forthcoming follow-up labor of love. And we so look forward to having you back to discuss that one as well. This concludes episode three of the Ashy podcast. Please find us on iTunes and follow us on at Ashy Journal on Twitter.